I'm really excited about this new series that we're starting, and it's on something called the Decalogue. Now, what you might know it as is as the Ten Commandments. You'll discover in a moment that that's, a, that's a misnamed. But um, this is a, uh, a series that I have been uh, preparing for the last, I would say, at least four months, and am very excited to go through this with you, and I really hope to be able to communicate in such a way that you'll see just how vital, uh, what we would describe as the Ten Commandments, how vital they are. The first time that we hear the Ten Commandments is talked about once in Exodus chapter 20 and then again in Deuteronomy chapter 5. Exodus chapter 20 occurs at Mount Sinai 50 days after God's 3 million people left Egypt. So he's delivered them from the land of slavery, has brought them, is bringing them into what's described as the promised land. And the first things that he says to, uh, to his people is, is the Ten Commandments, the Decalogue. Now, here's how you need to hear this. This is the only time that God ever spoke audibly to all of his people. And it's the, it's the only time that he ever wrote with his own finger something that we still have today. So this isn't just like the rest of the Bible, who, which was kind of mediated through uh, humans and written down. This was actually spoken audibly by God to all of his people. They freaked out, by the way, when they heard his voice. They said, stop it, it's too intense. Uh, but spoke audibly, and he actually wrote it down. Now, he only did this once. So what would he want to say? He, he doesn't say this anywhere. Like what's, if he's going to write it down by his hand, what is, what is he actually going to say? And it's, it's about morals and ethics. Now, I would think that if I just had like a few paragraphs, what I'd really want to communicate, it, you know, if I was God, which is a stretch, but if I, you know, I would want to say, you know, how much I love everybody and this is who I really am and I don't want to be misunderstood, so I'll just describe myself a little bit and I'll talk like that. And what he decides to do is give us 10 things, uh, 10 behaviors that he considers to be the main thing that he wants to communicate to his people. I just think this is incredible. So, what is the message? What's the, what's the overarching goal of these uh, 10 sayings? What is it? Well, it's freedom. In Exodus chapter 20, verse 2, which is the verse just before the Ten Commandments, it says, I'm the Lord your God. I'm the Lord. Whenever you see in the Bible, uh, Lord capitalized, capital L, capital O-R-D, when you see all that capitalized, uh, it is translating the word Yahweh. And Yahweh is God's personal name. And so when you read the Lord, it sounds very removed and distant. He's actually communicating his personal name to his people, which is a very different way of reading it. So I am Yahweh, your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. So this message has two parts to it that we're freed from slavery and for relationship. Let's look, first of all, at being freed from slavery. So if you know the story uh, in Exodus where God raises up Moses, Moses has kind of a power encounter with Pharaoh, 
His people get delivered from bondage, incredible uh, slavery, oppression. And this is what he wants to tell them in order to stay free. So, uh, think about some revolution that you hear in the world. Uh, there's some, uh, you know, somebody rises up, declares war against a nation, they defeat that nation, and then now they're in charge. What's the most vulnerable part of having a revolution? When you're now in charge. I mean, it's easy when you're fighting against the big bad people, and now that you're in charge, that's, that's, that's a whole other story. Well, this is what God wants to tell his people, that I've, I've brought you uh, out of slavery, and here's how to stay out of slavery. It's how you stay out, is these ten words. I think that when we think about slavery, we typically think about external oppression. If I say that I'm enslaved, what I mostly think about is people doing things to me that is robbing me of my free will or dignity or personal rights. That's how I think uh, what slavery is about. There is a deeper slavery than being in bondage to Pharaoh and the Egyptian slave drivers, and it's an internal oppression. An internal slavery is being enslaved to our self-centeredness. And so God says, it's, it's one thing for me to deliver you from an outside source of oppression, but in order for you to maintain your slavery, you're going to have to look at inside how you become slaved, enslaved to your very own desires and your very own self-will. This can happen when, uh, when we become a Christian. We go, yay, I'm free and then now we use our freedom to simply be self-serving. We go, you know, yo, God, thank you so much for saving me. I really appreciate it. And now I get to just experience your forgiveness and I get to do whatever I want. And what we discover with that kind of mentality is that we actually become even more enslaved than we were before. We become enslaved to our own selfish desires. Listen to how Psalm, one, uh, Psalm 19 describes what the law is like. Listen to this. I think this is just, I, I mean, when I read it, I never equate the law of God with anything that's being written in these verses. But listen, the law of the Lord is perfect, refreshing the soul. So the next time you read through Leviticus, you go, I am so refreshed right now reading Leviticus. Has that ever been? That's, so the, okay, the law of the Lord is perfect, refreshing the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. Meaning that uh, uh, there's no way to become wise without the law. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. Again, have you ever connected the law of God with joy. The commandments of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The decrees of the Lord are firm. All of them are righteous. They are more precious than gold, than much pure gold. They are sweeter than honey, than honey from the honeycomb. By them your servant is warned. In keeping them there is great reward. This is how the law of God is described. 
don't know. Do you, have you ever felt that? So in the Old Testament, there's, uh, there's 613 laws. And you're reading a law about not mixing uh, cotton and wool. And it refreshes you like honey and fills you like gold. Like this is way better than gold that I know not to mix wool and cotton. I am set free tonight. Do I get an amen? There is just, uh, it's a stretch. It's a stretch to view the law of God as life-giving and refreshing the soul. Yet this is exactly how the Bible describes it. I just, that's called faith. So, uh, so here's what I think. This is my experience, both personally and when I talk to other people. The thing that I hear you and I most concerned about is, uh, I would describe it as mental health, emotional health, social health, economic health. When I hear people talk, we're worried about rising interest rates and uh, being able to have a job that allows us to stay in this city at all. We're concerned about our closest circle of friends, whether we're getting along. Our emotional stability is a huge concern to us, as well as our mental well-being. All of those things are described in Psalm 19. That somehow, get this, this is just shocking. Somehow, through, through the law of God, we are going to experience mental, emotional, social, and economic health. That the key to all of that is found in the law, particularly the Decalogue. So, uh, we're going to spend this week and then 10 more weeks looking at this just because I think it's going to take that long to believe what I just said. I just think it's going to take that long that we're going to go, okay, so this is the key that unlocks all the health issues that I'm concerned with. This is it. I think it is. I really do. And it's going to take some faith and pressing in on our part to see how this is true. So the first thing that we're, we're, that we're set free is we're set free from slavery, from uh, um, uh, uh, not just an external oppression, but an internal oppression that somehow the law sets us free from that. And then we're set free, not just from slavery, but for relationship. If you've been in this church at all, we quote Matthew 20, verses 18 to 20 a lot. Because it summarizes, it says this is the sum of the law and the prophets. The sum of the Bible is to love God and to love your neighbor. It's the purpose of the Bible and it's the purpose of our life. So if you've heard me preach, care a lot about love. Why didn't God start with love? Why didn't he, because he's only written once with his finger... Why didn't he just say, uh, I really love you and I'd like you to love me and others, period. Instead, he gives a list of 10 things that we should or shouldn't do. Why? 
I think God is treating us the way that we treat our children. When we have a two-year-old, one-year-old, I won't go into the teens. I'll stay low just to be kind. Uh, we say, you know, uh, you know, you say to a two-year-old, I really would like you to love me. Like there's nothing going on. There's no, do you want candy? Because that's how I like to be loved. Like there's, there's just no, there's no. Now we know that we want them to become loving. But the way that you help somebody become loving, giving and receiving love, is actually saying, I'd like you to pick up your toys. I'd like you to say thank you when somebody gives you something. I, there's practical behavioral things that we say, and as children mature, they have in their heart a bunch of do's and don'ts. But over time, those do's and don'ts, you begin to go, why, why do I do that? Why am I allowed to do that and not do that? What's going on? Oh, love is being described. But the way that you actually get to experiencing love, get this, is through behavior modification. You start with behavior. You actually don't start with the heart. I was listening to somebody uh, give a lecture. And he says, if I go into any church, he says, in North America, and I say, do you, do you believe that God loves you? All the, all the people who call themselves Christians go, oh, yeah. Yeah, for sure. And then you say, do you love God? They go, yeah. I'm insulted, actually, that you would ask me the question. But anyways, yes, I love God. You just, you'll never get an argument. Because love is typically, in our society, an abstraction. It's an emotion. It's, uh, it, it, it's most deepest level, it might be described as acceptance. God accepts me, I accept him. We have a few issues, but we're working them through. And we would call that love. And then the Bible comes along and says, let me just give you a heads up on where love starts. Do, do or don't do these 10 things. If you want to grab hold of what love is, if you really want to know that God loves you and has set you free, and if you really want to love him, do this. This is a very different kind of Christianity. I'll introduce you to two, uh, to two big words. Uh, just because it's, it's, it's amusing and you can... Uh, impress your friends. I know you'll use it that way. The first is Gnosticism. Gnosticism is a, is a first century heresy that came into the church that somehow separated behavior and thought. And, uh, and the idea was is that if you were enlightened, you would have particular kind of beliefs, and those beliefs would make you true and right and pure. And what you did, not super important. Didn't really matter much. The second heresy that came in early on, but really took on flesh uh, a little bit later, is something called antinomianism. And it's the idea that because Jesus forgives my sins, I can basically do whatever I want. Because I'm going to get forgiven anyways. And so it's just optional. Behavior is optional in Christianity. 
Now, what we have, uh, this is called, just to, again, give you a heads up, this is called an evangelical church. Okay, that's what you're part of right now. You might want to walk out now if you, maybe that's news to you. But we are, we're an evangelical church, and that primarily means that we, we build this church on the truth of God's word. That's the, that's the main thing. I think that, I mean, there's a lot, it means more, but that's the main idea. We're an evangelical church, and we're built. Evangelicals have become Gnostics. Just so long as you and I believe the right things, it's all good. In evangelical churches, it is dangerous and divisive to talk about behaviors. You just, you, just, you don't want to go there. Because the first cry, as soon as you bring up behaviors, the first cry is going to be legalism. This is a legalistic church. I always knew that was true. I felt it in my heart. And it's just been proven because you asked me to do a thing. If you ask me to do a thing that's judgmental and it's legalistic and it's the law and it hurts me inside. Evangelicals are typically these days uh, undervaluing behavior and overemphasizing thinking. This is a huge deal. Getting ahead of myself. What if our mental, emotional, social, uh, economic health will actually be healed behaviorally by the grace of God. That's a different kind, I think, is a different kind of Christianity. And I'm personally convicted by this. And as uh, your pastor, I feel an urgency in my heart to describe these things to you because I believe they're the way to freedom. So here's the shocking idea. Love has moral content. If I say that I love you, if God says that he loves you, if you say that you love somebody, love is a moral word not an emotional word. It doesn't mean, I mean, it, it can include this, but it doesn't mean I'm attracted to you. It doesn't necessarily even mean that I have warm feelings about you. It means I behave towards you in a particular kind of way that's about honoring and caring about you more than myself. That's what that means. So, the problem is, if we start with love, we, we go, oh, I know what that means because my culture has taught me what that means, and it just has nothing to do with what the Bible says. And so the Bible has to back us up to Exodus chapter 20 and say, let's just lay again a foundation of behavior that health and freedom, liberation, joy, connection, love, all of those things are built upon. And if you miss being a toddler... You'll get into your teen years and adult years and you'll wonder why you're still unstable and it's because the foundation of right behaviors has not been rightly laid in our hearts and lives. And so we're going to make a huge risk and we're going to risk legalism to understand just how powerful the gospel of Jesus Christ really is.
So love has moral content. If I say to Debbie, I love you, it means I'm putting you ahead of me. So we're set free from slavery, and somehow these laws enable us to live in relationship with with God and others. Our foundation, then, is the Bible. Now get this. The Bible is a book of morals. It's what it is. It's a book of morals. I have a a fair amount, I'm sure a number of you here as well have a fair amount of uh, theological studies. And here's how I was told to study the Bible. You study the Bible uh, to do, I mean, when you do, uh, um, uh, well, I'll just, when you study the Bible, you do two things. You look at the history and the setting in which the Bible was written, and then you look at the grammar and the language in which it was written. It's called the grammatical historical method of interpretation. That's what I was taught. And it's absolutely right and incomplete. Because the Bible isn't just words, and it's not just historical, it's ethical. And unless we understand the ethics of a passage, we haven't fully understood the Bible. The Bible is a book of morals. It answers the question, what good works has God called us to do? 2 Timothy 3.16, this is a verse, 16 and 17, this is the verse that gets talked about all the time when you want to show somebody that the Bible was written by God. Here's what it says. All scripture is God-breathed. That's enough. We don't really, we just mumble the last part. But But the first part, we all love because it shows that the Bible is not just written by humans, it's written by God. And that's what makes it distinct uh, from all other literature. But it actually goes on and is useful for teaching, rebuking, all these are bad, teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. The purpose of the Bible is to train us for righteousness. Train us for righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for what? Every good work. The whole point of the Bible, this anointed word of God, is to equip you and I for good works. This is a hard sell. I'm happy to preach the first part. It's God breathed. We'll all get an amen. The the last part is the reason why you you and I have the Bible is so that we can be trained to live righteously. It means in right relationship and to do good works. That's the whole point of the Bible. This is just absolutely remarkable. Um, This means that if we were to resent the law, we actually resent love because the law is just a description of love. There's a fancy word, uh, it's called implicit ethics. Uh, scholars will say that in the Bible is implicit ethics. And what this means is that whether the Bible, uh, we're reading a part that is about the laws, teachings, stories, poetry, prophecy, the worldview, all of these things implied, implicit, in all parts of the Bible is morals. And so if you and I read a Bible story, we read Goliath, you know, David and Goliath, super cool, love it when the bad guy gets beat up. A little gross, you know, how he did it, but it was old. So I can put up with it. 
That's a moral story. There's a moral to that story. And a moral means it's something about our relationship with God and one another that that story is teaching us something about. It's a moral. It's a moral story. And we haven't fully understood the story unless we understand how it would change our behavior in relating to God and others. Two-thirds of the Bible is story. And those stories are telling us something. They're not just for our amusement. They're telling us how to rightly relate to God and to one another. Now, when you read the, uh, the laws in the Bible, as we said, there's a little over 600 of them. Uh, they're packed into the first part of the Bible. When you read them, uh, you can read them in the way that, uh, that we interact with law today. We live in a democratic society. And the primary way in a democratic society, if there's a disagreement with you and I, what we're going to appeal to is the law. And so we're going to say, you know, uh, uh, you know somebody parked in front of your condo. And you didn't like that. But the only way that you can say anything is if there's a law that says you can't park in front of my condo. And then you now have authority to say something. And then what you'll argue about is the law. And so uh, what you'll see in law courts is people argue over loopholes and technicalities. And, and the law is seen as very scientific and exact. That's not at all what Old Testament law is like. It's just not like that. The best way to describe it is as case law. It's giving a few examples to paint a picture of what love and relationship look like. It's just giving examples. It's never meant to be complete. In fact, most of the laws, when some of these laws deserve death, even back in the time in which they were strictly obeying these laws, the penalty of death was often not even used. But it's describing the severity of an offense. It's meant to describe, uh, it's painting a picture of what love and right relationship looks like. It's painting a picture of what sin looks like. This, is, this is, a, is a more helpful way to understand what the law is doing. So what we find then, if we want to be loving people, is that God speaks through Scripture into our hearts and minds. It's not just finding a rule. It's, you, gotta, you have to let it get into you, and you meditate on the truth of it. God speaks through Scripture into our hearts and minds for a unique situation. And we can't understand the truth, the law of God, until it penetrates our hearts and it's filled us from the inside out and then we know what to do. Psalm 25.5 says, Lead me in your truth and teach me, for you are the God of my salvation. For you I wait all the day. All day long I, I, I marinate in your truth, looking at what your law would look like in a moment so that I can be in right relationship with you and right relationship with others. So the Bible is a book of morals. It teaches us how to have right relationship with God and others. Finally, the Bible reveals then that love is neither lawlessness nor legalism. Here's what's helpful to know. We call the Ten Commandments the Ten Commandments. That's, a, that's misnamed. In, in, uh, in Deuteronomy, it's described as the Decalogue. Deca means ten, log means word. It's ten words. It's not actually even law. 
is 10 words. It's 10 points of advice that will transform your relationship with God and others. That's what it means. So you don't read it as, what am I allowed to do again? And is there a loophole? And how close can I get to the line? This, this is not what law is like. It's these are 10 words, 10 sayings that paint a picture of what first a, a, a healthy life-giving relationship with God looks like and then with our neighbor. What I really love about the Ten Commandments, well, there's lots to love about it. One of the things that's interesting is that only two of the commandments actually tell us to do something. All the others just say, don't do something. I find that really interesting. One of the reasons for that is based on Genesis chapter 2, verses 16 and 17. And what goes on there is uh, God says to Adam, you can eat from any tree in the garden, just don't eat in one. There's just one thing you can't do. You can do four million things. You just can't do one thing. Isn't that great? So I tend to think that law makes things small. Law actually makes things way bigger. Because you can do whatever you want. Just don't do eight things. Like, just don't do that. Just don't do eight things, and you can do whatever you want. That's what the law is like. The law brings liberty and life and freedom. It doesn't bring constriction and limitations. So you get to be in the Garden of Eden, and you get to do whatever you want. Just don't eat from one tree. And what do they focus on? The one tree. What do we focus on? The ten things. And we just feel insulted that we can't get to do everything that we, our heart wants to do. So the, uh, the Bible reveals that love is not doing anything you want, nor is it following rules in a scientific, cold, uncaring kind of way. It gets rid of both extremes, and it says this is something about love and relationship. And if you start living this way, you will be catapulted into a relationship with God that's going to be thoroughly life-changing. One of the things that's very trendy right now, those of you who listen to podcasts and Christian content, You'll notice that uh, right now what's very trendy is something called spiritual disciplines. And so we should meditate on the Bible, we should fast, pray, solitude, silence, these kinds of things. Great stuff. Highly recommend it. They didn't make it into the Ten Commandments. What your relationship with God is built on is having him be the only God. That's what it's first built on. Then it's built on having, uh, ha well, I'm going to go and preach every one of them, but then it's built on, on, uh, on not having a misunderstanding of who God is, but let him, him define who he is instead of you. And then once you have decided that it's only him and it's, your, it's his definition that you're going to live by, now you've got to not misrepresent him in how you live. It goes on like that. I prefer spiritual disciplines over the Ten Commandments. Because I can go away and meditate on something, think about stuff. Really helpful. But the Decalogue demands something of me that offends my uh, self-centeredness. And until you and I get around to that, God will never seem be as helpful as he says he would like to be. It'll always just be a little didn't seem to be what I thought it would be. 
So what the Ten Commandments describe is a land, not a line. They describe a wide open space of enjoying God and one another. They don't des describe a thin line that you and I have to balance our way through life, hoping that we'll stay on the straight and narrow. That's not what the Ten Commandments are about. Before I conclude, let me say one more thing. What's also interesting about this introduction to the Ten Commandments is it's, the Ten Commandments are given after they were delivered. What that means is, is that God was their deliverer before he was their lawgiver, which means that God bases his relationship with us not on our performance, but on his deliverance, his salvation. And so then we respond to him in these ways. We don't earn a relationship with him. We respond to his initiating a relationship with us in these 10 ways. Very helpful to know. So here's, we're, we're concluding now. What if, can you just hold on, just, just focus for another few minutes. What if your life and mine, the primary problem, the primary problem in our life is moral? What if the primary problem in my life is not money, not time, not discouragement, which I live with almost every day, not discouragement, not feeling alone. What if my primary, my, my chief ultimate problem, the only problem that God wrote with his finger, the only problem is a moral problem that I don't do, or not I do do, depending on whether it's a negative or positive command, 10 things. You guys, I think if we could grab hold of this, it won't just change our lives, it'll change our city. Um, in, um, uh, so my, uh, uh, one of my sons and daughters, Jessica and Tyler, are with their fiancés, super fun for them, at the Every Nation uh, School of Campus Ministry in Nashville. And they're having an amazing time. It's just, uh, they are, they, they, two days in, they were say, if this is all we got, they're going to be there for two months. If this is all we got, we got our money's worth. Like, it's just changing their lives. A week in, they, the first week, is, they call it Heaven Week, where they cast demons out of everybody and uh, prophesy over them, and it's fun. And then, they are about to go into their regular schoolwork, and uh, they hear, and maybe you've heard this, that there's a revival that's breaking out in a place called Asbury, which is in the middle of nowhere. They told me that in the town, there's a gas station. That's it. It's in the middle of nowhere. So they have stuff to go through because it's a two-month course and it's really tight. Kevin York, who's been at our church, he's the um, executive director for all of Every Nation. He says, we're going to pay for all the students, we're going to pay for their hotel and all their food to go and experience revival. And uh, they all pack up in cars, go down there, spend three, day, three nights down there. And here was the common, there, there's two common descriptors of revival. A priority on the love of God and personal repentance. I've studied revival uh, over the years. And what I have heard time and time again for revival to come is this birthed in prayer. For sure. For sure. 
we need to be a praying people. What gets less press is revival is also built on repentance. When we look in the Old Testament, we see certain moments of revival. We see during the time of Nehemiah and Ezra, we see in Hezekiah, and then we see in John the Baptist. What was the baptism of John the Baptist? A baptism of repentance. What did, when, when, they stood and, when they stood and heard the law of God in Ezra, they stood for hours and then wept in repentance. Hezekiah, radical reform through uh, Israel, repentance. What if you and I aren't experiencing personal or social revival because we struggle to know what repentance practically looks like in our life and we still have a theoretical vision of who God is and how he answers prayer? I, I'm trying to explain with all this in me how important this moment is for us. And this moment is going to make us be full of joy and lightheartedness and, uh, and wisdom and refreshment. This is not legalism. This is joy and life. But it is behavioral. And this is what you and I are going to have to wrestle with in the next couple months. If our main problem is moral, it requires a gospel solution. Jesus doesn't make any sense if your problems are only financial and mental. It makes, it, Jesus' solutions make sense when our problem is moral. We're out of relationship with God and others. When that's our problem, the gospel comes alive. You see, if we just stop at the Ten Commandments, that's just discouraging. Because nobody can keep those things. But the, God, but the law is meant to be, as the Bible describes, a, a tutor or a teacher to highlight just what Jesus Christ has actually come to bring us. Salvation. Deliverance. But it's deliverance from immorality. It's deliverance from self-centeredness and the effects of that. It's a different kind of deliverance. And the people of Israel struggled to grab hold of this. They were super happy to not have to make bricks for Egyptians. But they were very upset when they were told to love God with all their heart, mind, soul, and strength. And they couldn't grab hold of that, and so they fell into an even worse bondage than what the Egyptians gave them. And our way out is to grab a hold of the Decalogue. And in that, we find Jesus Christ. So I'm inviting you. I'm inviting you into a journey. And I would encourage you to invite your friends. And let's work through this together. This is a big deal. And I believe it's something that God is inviting our community to grab hold of. I can tell you how excited I am to do this with you. We're going to, if we can have those who are handing out communion, if they can start to do that, worship team, you can come up. And I'd like to pray for us as we, uh, 
as we seek to grab hold of these things. Listen to the gospel described in Titus chapter 2, verse 14. It says, Jesus Christ gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. Father, I thank you that this is what salvation is. You are saving us from our immorality, from our self-centeredness, the self-centeredness that drives us crazy, the self-centeredness that is so steeped in our society that even when we're innocent, we're still brought low because of the spirits that are in our city. The confusion that we feel, the depression, the anxiety, those are, that's, that's oppression. We don't invent those things. Nobody chooses those things. But we're weighted down. We don't live in Egypt, but Canada has weighted us down with, with a heaviness that sometimes feels unbearable. And so, Father, I thank you that you don't come along to blame us. You come along to liberate us from that oppression into love and right relationship. And God, I pray that you would give us the humility and the patience to let the Decalogue be our guide, to liberate us, that we would see your kingdom come and your will be done. This is what our hearts hunger for and long for. Teach us now that we could say that the law is good and liberates the soul.